This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, and welcome to the Conflict Mineral Ban edition of Speaker for the Living. We're going to discuss the impending suspension of the Dodd-Frank Conflict Mineral Ban that uh, Trump is likely to sign an executive order for. And we're going to tie that into forced labor and human trafficking. But first, I will say hello to my co-host. Hello, JJ. Jesus! What's the haps? Well, hopefully this will be published before the executive order for the conflict mineral ban. We shall see. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll get to more specifics regarding that uh, rule, but we want to set up about the location that it's talking about, which is the DRC, or the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm-hmm. And just so everyone out there listening knows, what we're going to do is from here on out, just for the sake of brevity, because saying the Democratic Republic of the Congo again and again gets a little old we are just going to be using drc so please just know that those those two things are synonymous okay that's just the abbreviation of the country and what in particular that we're talking about the drc is we're talking about the mining of conflict minerals within the drc and the drc is a source of many minerals that are used in products Mm-hmm. And in particular, uh, the DRC holds four products that are commonly mined. There are more, but sort of the big four, they're called the three TGs. So the number three, then the letter TG, and that comes for their initials. And so those four minerals that are the most predominant um, in getting mined in the DRC and then used are casseret, which is used for tin, Wolframit, which is tungsten, which I'm sure you've heard about. Colton for tantalum and gold ore. Uh, And so if you are a geologist or someone who's interested in rocks, I probably pronounced all of those except for gold ore incorrectly. But the fact remains that these three TGs are extracted from from the Eastern Congo and then are used largely even the gold ore, which you may think right off the bat, you know, gold jewelry, is that what they're really useful for is in the making of electronics. So if you own a cell phone, you most certainly have tantalum, tungsten, tin, and gold in your phone. Whether or not those three TGs, those three TG minerals that are in your phone or not, though, came from a conflict base is based on their place of origin. So did they come from the Democratic Republic of Congo? Did they come from Rwanda? You know, where did these items come from? And so it's not the mineral, but it's the origin of the mineral that makes it a conflict mineral. And then there is also legal and illegal mining, which has happened in the DRC. And the other challenge in the DRC is they've had lots of conflict, hence conflict minerals. The uh, nation has gone through a civil war and has been destabilized for a while now. And that makes it a lot harder to monitor and have the rule of law take place. But 
there are these minerals in other places, Latin America, for instance. Uh, I'll share a report from Verite, where Quinquepes uh, went down to Peru and researched on the ground uh, what's happening with illegal mining there and how that can lead to labor violations and trafficking and how then the gold gets mixed in with all the other gold and it's hard to trace. So this is not just a DRC problem, but we are going to focus on the DRC today. And to set that up, we have a portion of the narrative from the 2016 TIP report, the Trafficking in Persons report from the State Department. So what do you have, JJ? Well, what I have is I'm just going to quote directly from the TIP report, but I do encourage people to go ahead and go out and read the TIP report themselves. You can actually request a physical copy if you don't like reading long things on PDF on your computer. And it's just a nice thing to have about the house. Someone breaks in, you could probably beat them to death with it. They're quite big. But it's a nice little phone book of what's happening in the world, or at least through a Western lens of what's happening in the world. But what I'm going to be reading is coming from the sort of beginning of the 2016 tip report on the DRC. Okay. So to direct quote, so due to ongoing conflict, more than 1.8 million people have been displaced within DRC and internally displaced persons in Katanga, North Kivu and South Kivu provinces remain particularly vulnerable to abduction forced conscription, and sexual violence by armed groups and government forces. I'm going to pause there from the direct quote. When we're saying vulnerable to abduction, it's not just to be kidnapped. It's to be kidnapped for ransom. It's to be kidnapped to be forced into labor. So vulnerable to abduction is kind of a clanky term. So just FYI, that is a sort of trafficking. It's a way that a lot of countries will refer to trafficking without actually saying human trafficking or slavery. To go back into the quote, in 2015, several armed groups continued to abduct and forcibly recruit Congolese men, women, and children as combatants and in support roles, such as guards, porters, cleaners, cooks, messengers, spies, and tax collectors at mining sites. Women and girls were forced to marry or serve as sex slaves for members of some armed groups. So again, I'm going to pause there. It's the forcible recruitment and abduction of men, women, and children as combatants that is a form of human trafficking. Forced labor via forced conscription is human trafficking. And this is true even for adult men and women. I know we talk about child soldiers a lot because I think that evokes sort of an automatic emotional response from us. But bear in mind that adult men and women can also be forced into these support roles. They may be there and may be fighting, not out of their own choice or volition. Then when you add in the so women and girls were forced to marry or serve as sex slaves for members of some armed groups, we don't have any reports of sexualized violence or gender-based violence against men, but we know kind of anecdotally that that also happens. So I encourage you to sort of look into that. Back into the quote. As reported in 2015, some children were also forced to commit crimes for their captors, such as looting and extortion. In 2015, an international organization reported 491 confirmed cases of children who were forcibly recruited and used by armed groups, while 2,102 children were separated or escaped from armed groups. 
So what we're having here now is this mix of forced conscription and then forced conscription and forced crime, sort of a two-pronged situation here, if you will. And we don't know if that 491 and that 2,102, that if those two numbers were commingled. So it could be that it's actually closer to 2,500 that are reported or a little bit less. But I think what's important here is that we know that there is sort of this active campaign to use children. Now I'm going to skip down just very briefly, a little bit later in the report too. Some men, women, and children working in artisanal mines in Eastern DRC are subjected to forced labor, including debt bondage by mining bosses, other miners, family members, government officials, and armed groups. Some children are subjected to forced labor and the illegal mining of diamonds, copper, gold, cobalt, ore, and tin, as well as the smuggling of minerals. In January 2016, an international organization reported widespread abuse, including forced labor of some children in artisanal cobalt mines in southern DRC. Now, we're not really going to be talking today a lot about the diamond or copper trade directly. I think a lot of people have heard sort of the idea of a conflict diamond. And while this certainly is the case, what is far more common now is a conflict mineral as opposed to the sort of end conflict product that is then shown in jewelry. Those certainly are fantastic documentaries and sort of research that's been done into the mining of gold and platinum, copper and diamonds for the sort of luxury trade. And the main thing we want to establish is that things like forced labor and human trafficking and labor violations, labor exploitation, are a problem that is known and documented by the State Department in the TIP report. Yes, very much so. So the point where mm -hmm. if you go beyond sort of the TIP report and you look at U.S. statements related to DRC, uh, conflict-free minerals, like the look, the looking forward to buying minerals that are not involved in any sort of conflict. They do mention the DRC are joining countries. They mention Sudan, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, the United Republic of Tanzania, Zambia, Angola, Congo, the Central African Republic. All these things are mentioned, and they're mentioned because people know that this is where conflict resources tend to come from. But the DRC has the largest records of this sort of mass human trafficking occurring related to mineral mining. And so now to lead into the conflict mineral rule that is under discussion, I'll start with mm -hmm. going to the actual law, which was passed within Dodd-Frank, the financial regulation law. There are some who wonder whether this should be under a financial regulation law. You could look at that a lot of different ways. And from there, we will go into the Dodd-Frank conflict mineral rule. It was passed as part of that legislation and enacted a little bit later. And the rationale that it gives within the actual law, and I'll read from the actual wording. And so what it says in terms of the rationale, quote, 
In enacting the conflict minerals statutory provision, Congress intended to further the humanitarian goal of ending the extremely violent conflict in the DRC, which has been partially financed by the exploitation and trade of conflict minerals originating in the DRC. This section explains the exploitation and trade of conflict minerals by armed groups is helping to finance the conflict, and that the emergency humanitarian crisis in the region warrants the disclosure requirements established by the Exchange Act Section 13B. So this is primarily about uh, public corporations disclosing about conflict minerals and whether they have any that are from the DRC. So then to get into the mechanics of the law in the introduction, that the section requires the commission to promulgate rules requiring issuers with conflict minerals that are necessary to the functionality or production of a product manufactured, such as a phone. Or just sort of any electronic, too, in general. So even if you don't use a phone, if you use an iPod, if you use a computer. And then to continue, quote, by such person to disclose annually whether any of the minerals originated in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or an adjoining country. If an issuer's conflict minerals originated in those countries, Section 13P requires the issuer to submit a report to the commission that includes a description of the measures it took to exercise due diligence on the conflict minerals source and chain of custody. So to step back, so it goes and it requires reporting and what type of due diligence on knowing the source. And then to continue, the measures taken to exercise due diligence must include an independent private sector audit of the report that is conducted in accordance with standards established by the Comptroller General of the United States. Section 13P also requires the issuer submitting the report to identify the auditor and certify the audit. End quote. And I'm reading from the dry law, just so we're going directly to the source. And having private auditors is more expensive. You would hope that they would be a little more objective. But this has been a very expensive proposition for companies, and they knew it would be. It uh, was over a billion collectively to start, and then maintenance costs every year are estimated to be around $200 million. And the conflict minerals are, in the report, uh, tungsten... Tellinium, tin, is it three? Yeah, no, that sounds exactly right. It's just, it's one of those things where I know it can seem kind of very much in, in the weeds or sort of, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest, it's a little boring. When we start kind of reading off for to, to you guys just the pure law or the pure statements that are coming out, say, even from a trafficking in persons report. But the reality is, is that there is a whole lot of undercurrent to this main position. Now, the disclosure does not mandate that they don't source from those places, but if you're sourcing conflict minerals, you're supposed to report it, and so there's reason to not do that. As with lots of well-meaning laws, there have been unintended consequences where Certain legal operations don't want to deal with the reporting at all, where some companies, because they can use conf- or they can use illegal or legal minerals from elsewhere, where they just avoid the DRC so they don't have to deal with it if they know that they're from the DRC. And plus there's the compliance cost. 
So businesses have not been very keen and uh, not just businesses. Yeah, when you think about the idea of a compliance cost, it's that the business normally, the business world, the market doesn't want to eat that cost. So what they do is they pass that cost on then to consumers. And particularly when you're working with consumers that are in a sort of the market that we're in now, what you're dealing with are people who say, well, if it's going to cost an additional $100, I not only am not willing to buy it, I cannot buy it. So then there is a tendency that companies want to make the prices as low as humanly possible in order to provide to consumers who themselves might be sort of strapped financially. And unfortunately, what then happens is that we kick the can downhill. And who ends up suffering more are the people already in these vulnerable groups who are already, if they were paid at all, were exceptionally underpaid. So as noted in the New York Times, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act has become known in the region and has had unintended consequences or has had unintended and devastating consequences brought about a de facto embargo on the minerals mined in the region the smelting companies that used to buy from eastern congo have stopped for locals the law has been a catastrophe villagers have relied on the mining in- who relied on the mining income to buy food when harvest failed are beginning to go hungry or at least according to david aronson walter olson at cato is overjoyed that uh, this might be overturned. And then more recently, the interim acting head of the SEC, Pinoir, he said the disclosure requirements have caused a de facto boycott of minerals from portions of Africa with effects far beyond the Congo adjacent region. Legitimate mining operations are facing such onerous costs to comply with a rule that they are being put out of business. It is also unclear that the law has in fact resulted in any reduction in the power and control of armed groups or eased the suffering of many innocent women, or men, women, and children in the Congo and surrounding areas. Moreover, the withdrawal from the region may undermine U.S. national security interests by creating a vacuum filled by those with less benign interest. So just to try to give a balanced approach to this. There there are people who think that this law has been expensive, that it hasn't done what it accompli- it set out to do, that it might have had unintended consequences that made it worse for people in the Congo. So that's that side of the argument. That's the argument that's referenced in the draft executive order, which uh, I'll have a link to, and it's on the Guardian's website. And there's two parts that I want to point out. So this is the draft executive order that will suspend or really waive the rule under a legal national security rationale. So in Section 2, the commission shall temporarily waive the requirements of the conflict mineral rule if the president transmits to the commission a determination that it is in the national security interest of the United States to waive the rule and includes the reasons which they have. And then my favorite part, section three, the secretary's plan. Uh, quote, the secretary of state and secretary of the treasury shall propose to the president a plan for addressing human rights violations and funding of armed groups in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or an adjoining t- country. 
The plan could include targeting persons and entities engaged in violations of law and negative human rights impacts. Okay, and I'll stop there. This might get suspended, and there are people who have reasons to say this is not the right approach. That money could be used more elsewhere. Uh, there's ways we could help the people in the Congo better. Okay, fair enough. So what do we do about the Congo? We've already established that trafficking and forced labor with minerals is a problem. Those minerals end up going to a lot of places. So here it says that the plan could include, doesn't say what it will include, violations of the law, which if you don't know there's violations, it's harder to do anything about them, but also that the Secretary of State has, or, and Treasury has, up to 180 days to do something. So they could have a six-month vacuum of just figuring it out after putting this on pause. And I take issue with that, just the idea of, we don't think this is working, so let's pause it and come up with something abstract maybe within six months. During which time, we will have no oversight over these corporations or these mining entities. And that's the thing I think that it's easy to forget if you don't work sort of in humanitarian aid or you don't sort of work in this human trafficking space or even in just supply chain management, is that to leave for six months is to completely remove the project and have to start again. People disappear firms fold, firms are renamed, you lose your contacts. So the fact that this is six months, I know it might seem short, but this is actually a huge negative impact on the people who are trying to adequately trace these minerals. And while there are people who will point out, like Laura Say from Colby College, that trade has shifted over to smuggling and 90% of the gold is now being smuggled out, and there were people who point out the amount of illegal mining. Still not mentioning mm -hmm. trafficking here, or forced labor. While trafficking might be more likely when you, if you have people who, who are going to do illegal mining, they probably don't care as much about <laughs> treating people well. Yeah. But legal mining does not mean that people will not be trafficked or otherwise exploited. So mm -hmm. that, that's one issue with the way that they're framing this. So this law applied to public companies, but then it creates a domino effect because then they go and they have to talk to their suppliers. Their suppliers might not know. So even though it's the requirement for public companies, it's not a requirement for their suppliers necessarily. So then they have to try to motivate their suppliers who may or may not be motivated. And then their suppliers might have suppliers, and on and on and on. And again, they may or may not care. So it gets to be very hard. And then that leads us to some interesting data points, like from a study of the University of Michigan. So what the University of Michigan did was they looked primarily at this idea of subcontracting within the DRC, meaning that a supplier may purchase one of these conflict minerals from a military leader who is using forced labor. 
in the mines of the DRC, sell to another supplier who does not use conflict labor, and then sell it to sort of the main exporter. So now they can say that there are no conflict minerals. We have pulled these three TG minerals out in a way that's in compliance with federal law. But even though the federal law, even under Dodd-Frank, it's supposed to sort of kick this down the line and that all of these other suppliers are supposed to follow suit. As Seth pointed out, this is hard. And what hard translates to most of the time is expensive. And a lot of these firms are not willing to do this, particularly if you have a firm that is functioning solely to bring in money to support a, a militia group in the DRC, right? So what researchers at the University of Michigan analyzed were due diligence reports that the SEC, and I think Seth mentioned that the SEC is the Securities and Exchanges Commission, which is a U.S. entity. So they looked at all the due diligence reports that the SEC received in 2014 and 2015, which equates to about 1,300 reports per year. So this is still actually a pretty small sample size. So you're thinking about now who's reporting, why are they reporting? So then they looked at SEC data and business metrics to analyze the organizational factors associated with supply chain visibility. So what they're looking at is a company's organizational complexity, the leverage they have over their suppliers. So do suppliers feel that they can come to them and say, I can't provide this without using conflict labor? The intricacy of the supply chain. So is this something where there are like 18 different subcontractors with different balls up in the air and it's public profile. So what does the public, what do people in general know about this particular organization and how they get their minerals and what they found is i i don't think will shock anyone who listens to this podcast or works in this field but is, is quite upsetting that almost 80 percent of firms were unable to determine the sources of minerals in their products and only one percent could certify their products free of conflict minerals with great certainty the reason for that, they said, was largely just the complexity and size of the supply chain because they're trying to bring in as many minerals as humanly possible. And the more suppliers you had, the harder it was to prove that every uh, 3TG item you got in was conflict-free. Now, this is all corporations within the DRC. When you move into internationally diversified firms, so firms that are DRC but also have sort of a international actor that has some sort of buy-in to them, so say a DRC US sort of entity, that of foreign-based companies, they were about 22% less likely to admit they were unable to verify the origins of their products. So this doesn't mean that they were 22% less likely to have conflict minerals, it just means they were less likely to admit it, even though they were more likely to have difficulty verifying their sourcing. What finally on a kind of maybe positive note that they did find was that reputation is what made companies more likely to actively look into the supply chains, not their commitment to environmental or social issues, uh, not that they were getting sort of subsidies, not sort of an outside actor, we always say like the Angelina Jolie 
example of just coming in and offering money or attention to a thing. That's not what made these companies decide to have more due diligence. It was the idea of reputation. So people won't buy from us if we have a reputation of using forced labor. So we have to then not use forced labor because that will hurt our reputation and that will hurt our bottom line. And I think that this is kind of a positive note out of this study, if only because that tells us as consumers that we have a lot of power in this scenario, right? Because we can say with our money and then sort of with our words while posting on our phones that possibly have conflict minerals, that we're not going to tolerate this sort of sourcing any longer. And that idea, though, kind of leads us to once we start to sort of fight for the reputation factor. So once we start saying, okay, well, we're not going to buy unless we know that it, these conflict minerals are conflict free, right? Instead, what happens, it's a little bit insidious, is that we, we then have intermediary companies from other countries who are not bound by federal law. Remember, the Dodd-Frank Act is a U.S. act. It requires U.S. electronics companies not use conflict minerals from Africa. So instead, what's likely is you have things like Chinese mineral buyers coming in and establishing a virtual monopoly, buying as many conflict minerals as humanly possible because there is no sort of domestic law at the moment in China related to the consumption of conflict minerals. And then either A, bringing these minerals into China, rebranding them, and then selling them to other entities, be they in other countries or the United States directly, or using these conflict materials directly in electronics that are designed and destined for the US market. So whether or not it's sort of something like the the app, China's answer to the iPhone, the Xiaomi phone, that is increasingly being sold in the US, or it is a Chinese company working as a subsidiary or subcontractor to an American company that's doing its production of, say, a tablet in China, and it should have this clear supply chain, but Chinese company A, who's building the tablet, says, oh, well, we bought all of our minerals from Chinese company B, and they have a clear supply chain. What we're seeing is that U.S. companies are not actually checking into the supply chains very closely to see down to the actual source if electronics destinies for the U.S. market are not being made using conflict minerals. And in fact, they're really not looking super deeply into even these sort of rebranded materials that are being sold. China does have uh, a natural supply of some 3TGs. So I can see why companies who are kind of hoping for the best would think that something produced domestically in China could be, could be bought. But what we're seeing being reported from the countries where these conflict minerals are is that they're seeing increasing foreign investment. And it's not just China. It's a lot of different Southeast Asian uh, countries and organizations. But China is the big one just because China has the largest purchasing power in the region. Now, this comes out of a particular study that was done on Chinese companies that are continuing to buy minerals from the DRC. 
and how market pressure in the DRC, now that China's buying so much, might change sort of the face of mining in the DRC. And that will, of course, be included in our links for you to read up on. But I think this intro into that supply chains are never as clear as we want them to be now that we're in a global marketplace is notable. So when we're looking at a reputation of a company, we also have to look at where every single piece of this final product was made and manufactured. Mm-hmm. And some companies like Apple do a pretty mm-hmm. good job of that, partially because they have a lot of pull. They can go yes. and work with their two main factories in China, Foxconn and Pegatron. Still like Pegatron as a name. <laughs> it's like a robot. Sorry, had to throw that in. No, they, they go. They have a lot of control at uh, Foxconn and Pegatron where they can say, do this, and they will because they really want the work from Apple. And Apple claims that they are now auditing 100% of their suppliers for the use of conflict minerals. I don't know if that's fully true or not, but they're doing a pretty good job. But not every company has the resources of Apple. And for smaller public companies, there can be challenges because they just might not have the resources to look as good. Exactly. And it's not just resources like having the financial capital of being in a a monopoly or sort of kind of a premier company in the industry that you're working in. It also is relying on your ability to get people there. If you're a Mm -hmm. small startup, you might not necessarily be able to dedicate a staff person to go live and work in factories, working with the people surrounding them, working with the mines, working with the suppliers, who also then has the language skills, particularly when working in a sort of smaller country context. And so the solution that a lot of people in development will throw out is to hire local. But when you're hiring local people to report in these supply chains, you're also hiring people that may possibly already be embedded in this local system that is corrupt and that does use a lot of forced labor. So it's a very complicated balancing act. So there are multiple companies that will do auditing and work with companies on improving their supply chains, on uh, on corporate social responsibility, performing audits. So regarding conflict minerals specifically, PricewaterhouseCoopers is one of them, and another one is Deloitte. And Deloitte has a really powerful sentence that sums up a lot and I'll quote that although many companies may view social compliance efforts as cumbersome experiences with conflict minerals suggest that these efforts have helped companies improve supply chain transparency and risk identification capabilities so let's go back to that number with the reports 80% who have filed reports don't know if they're getting, where their minerals are coming from or don't know if they're tied to the DRC. 80%. 80% don't yeah. know how directly the minerals in their products are tied to slavery. That largely companies don't know how many minerals are performed with forced labor and end up in the products in all of our homes. I would feel confident saying most Americans probably have something in their home that a slave contributed to. Mm-hmm. Oh, not just something, a, a lot of things. 
just providing the baseline that there's at least one thing, there's probably many things, and that we don't even know. And then it's, well, is ignorance bliss? Or, hey, this reporting is expensive. Do we just not do it? And then do we just say, oh, it's hard. It's not our problem. You know, we're, we're a company. This is a governmental problem. Oh, really? So is it the DRC's problem? Well, they've fallen apart. So what do we do? Do we just say, well, they don't have their act together. I guess we'll just have to accept that we're going to get minerals because we need them and people are forced to mine it and have health problems. Oh, well, not our problem. But that is exactly my problem here. I don't know that the conflict mineral rule is the solution, but I'm more than a little disturbed at the idea of something that has helped companies actually have some level of transparency and work toward having risk identification, which is really important, that we're going to remove that without even knowing whether there's still going to be the level of transparency we have now. Like, are, are we going to require anything else? Or are we just going to say, this is hard, let's give companies a pass, and, and, and ask the question, do we actually care? Or do we only care to this point where it's hard or expensive, so we just accept it, where it's an acceptable loss? and it's acceptable mm -hmm. human misery and hey let's profit from it and let's pass on that profit to our consumers so they can get cheaper products yay no <laughs> exactly and so when we're looking at what we've started with we have the tip report from the state department that has all of this information about forced labor and slavery and sex slavery and what's happening in mines. And then the Secretary of State is one of the people tasked with coming up with a plan. Well, Rex Tillerson, your department's report, the department that you now run, says that human trafficking is a problem in the DRC, in mining. And so if you are tasked with coming up with a plan this is something you need to address for the State Department to be taken seriously at all. And I really hope that this is something that you're thinking about. And if you are, then I and other people who are in anti-human trafficking will applaud you. And if you don't, we'll be really upset. We'll be more than just a little upset, too. That's a lot of upset. My, my concern, Seth, honestly, is I don't think anyone's thinking about it in that way i think people are for the most part due due in large part to the economic downturn is well how am i going to get the things that i need or things that i perceive that i need how how am i going to do that if prices keep rising so the best possible thing is for prices to drop and that is not it's not applicable this isn't something where the solution is u.s management you know, because the U.S. can't produce these things. We don't have them. This isn't something that can be solved by looking inward. This is something 
that exists outward. The technology certainly isn't going away, although there are projects to get away from three TGs. Uh, there's a couple of things out of the University of Carnegie Mellon that I'll link below that are sort of interesting that are always looking for not necessarily a Kickstarter, but sort of interest. But barring any sort of major technological change, people are going to continue to need phones. People are going to continue to buy phones. People are going to continue to use computers, etc. So how do you solve this problem? Well, my solution is you decide to be an ethical human being and eat that cost because it is important or because it is more important for the people who are mining these materials to be treated fairly. Now, granted, that's coming from a position of privilege because I have the ability to save up for a phone. I don't need it to work. But it's through sort of this raising middle class, through this purchasing power that we have, that the change in the U.S. is, is more possible, shall we say, moving forward. This sort of fear of, well, we don't need these regulations, or these regulations, because they weren't perfect, should be removed, isn't actually helpful when you get down into it. It isn't. Well, and it's removing without a replacement. With a re exactly, with yeah. It's, something it's, abstract in the future. Maybe. That may be happening in the future. Well, and having studied this and then also having interned at Verite, which works with corporations, at, there are corporations I can applaud for what they've done. Um, Apple's done a lot. I could say that they could do more, but hey, Apple has done a lot. Yeah, I think, I think it's looking to corporations who have done it mm -hmm. well or continue to sort of revisit their own corporate social responsibility projects to do it better. I am all for amendments and modifications or the, we're going to remove something because we have something so much better that's going to go in now. Those are all things that I am perfectly happy with and, and would be sort of championing. I don't think I said a real word. It's a championing. Champion. These would be all things I'm celebrating. Well, uh, and, and unfortunately, since we don't have that, instead what we have is it's like if you have a cut that's deep and you have a Band-Aid on it, removing the Band-Aid and just walking around and letting this deep cut air out is probably not going to help it. Now, the Band-Aid might have been doing an inadequate job, but at least it was doing its job. Well, and currently, from what I've looked at, it's hard to get past what is considered tier one within a supply chain. It's hard to get past the factories. And even when you look at the factories, like in Malaysia, you find indicators of forced labor, that there are not a lot of processes in place to go all the way through the supply chain that lots of companies just don't know. And I understand from the business point of view that there's things that are difficult and that it's hard to get everyone to play by the rules. Okay. But we need to work toward that. The, mm -hmm. If your company, through its purchases, through what it decides to pay a supplier, is creating externalities and is profiting from the conditions, such as there's cheap labor in the supply chain, it's a cop-out just to say it's business and it's not my problem. 
okay, it's hard, but it's still a cop out. Mm -hmm. And that when we look, just as when we look at coffee, look at factories, when we look, when we do interviews, that organizations like Verite and others, they find indicators of forced labor, like having passports taken, being paid less than the minimum mm -hmm. wage, etc. They find that, and they only find that because people are looking, because there's some level of transparency. And so if we're going to remove one mechanism that, as Deloitte has said, has helped improve supply chain transparency, and then most of the articles don't even mention trafficking and forced labor. Like, of the ones I've looked at this week, hardly any of them mention it. That the executive order doesn't mention it. That most of the criticisms from the past don't mention it. Then I just get pissed off. Yeah. And it really makes no, me it, wonder it, what our values are. Go ahead. No, I think, I think that's what it it's you're seeing now a difference in behavior from the values that were listed if that sort of separation is true and so then what we're seeing now with sort of the repealing or the modification of these rules is that there is now a height that there is a clear hierarchy of people and if there is a clear hierarchy of people where some people are worth less than others, then we are operating under the conditions of modern-day slavery increasingly looking more and more like historic slavery. Well, and those of you who run corporations, and I, I do want to recognize that some of you do have people that do sustainability, that have positions relating to human rights, that have positions relating to supply chain transparency, great, thank you, I applaud you. But as a whole, based on what I've seen in, in researching, I just don't believe that corporations as a whole will pay money to have a lot of transparency in their supply chains to eliminate forced labor. I just don't believe that. I, yeah. There is not some sort of government involvement, and in this case primarily from the United States, if there's some, not some sort of government policy. I just don't see it. Unfortunately, the free market does not take care of everything. So if, as some pe person said, that the 200 million that is spent just on disclosure and due diligence, if this is not the right approach, then you don't just get to be off scot-free and do nothing and have people who buy your products not care. Yeah. No, exactly. But it's going to be one or the other, either corporations will do this or government will make you and if we're going to do another policy fine come up with something that works that actually addresses the issue and one of the issues is human trafficking bam i think that quickly sums up the situation seth that's really what we wanted to say yeah we would like to be hopeful i'm skeptical but yeah i'd like to be hopeful but we are also ready to make a commotion if this type of issue is not given attention. Yeah, and I'm, I think I speak for a lot of people who, who are kind of scared in, in the field about what this is going to mean 
in the in the world what what this is going to mean for the many 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 people who are currently held in bondage or maybe held in bondage in the future what what this is going to mean for them because as we've talked about before the u.s tends to set policy that's then followed and so to the media the much maligned media that mlm i've read nothing that talks about forced labor and human trafficking in regards to this rule and i'm not okay with that so can you please dig a little deeper and can you talk about human trafficking, not just here, but can you talk about human trafficking in relation to labor laws, in relation to all these immigration things that have been talked about, in, in, in relation to borders? I do believe in the media. I believe that there are many journalists who are trying. And I just really encourage you <laughs> and implore you please talk about human trafficking as it relates to all these issues that affect human trafficking. And with that, anything else, JJ? No, just keep the faith. Keep the faith, folks. Thanks for listening. Until next time, where we talk more about policies that relate to the Trump era. Yay! Goodbye. Bye! This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.